This is the Modern Stoicism Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Joining me on the podcast today is Donald Robertson. Donald is a writer and trainer, and he's written many blog posts and articles on the subject of Stoicism. Donald also leads online training courses for Stoicism. Donald's books include The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, and his latest bestseller, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. Donald, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure. So, Donald, your latest book was titled How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. I understand that you have a, you are very much a fan of Marcus. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I am a fan of Marcus. He is an intriguing figure. We know a lot about him. Actually, one of the things I noticed is a lot of people who read the meditations quite religiously even seem to be convinced, strangely convinced that we don't know anything about Marcus Aurelius, which is that a lot of people just don't realize that we have a bunch of information about him. He was kind of a big deal back in the day, you know? And so apart from a few bits of archaeological evidence and from coins and inscriptions, we have three major Roman histories and then kind of fragments and in, in other texts about him. So we, we know a bunch of stuff. We also have his private correspondence to Fronto. So the long and the short of it is out of all of the Stoics, because he was a famous guy, or an emperor, an important guy, we know more, much more about him than we know about any of the other Stoics. And that intrigued me because for some reason, I always wanted to know how his philosophy was really, in, how it took place, how he, how he applied it in daily life. I wanted to kind of put it within a context so that I could make it more relatable and more understandable. And, and that's what I've been trying to do with my work on Marcus Aurelius. So you mentioned uh, Mark, the main text that Marcus is known for, which is the meditations. I think um, it's, it's intriguing to me because Marcus mentions very much as the meditations progresses all these people in his life as well as people of roman history but he also mentions a number of people who are part of the greater history of the world that he lived in people like i know that he doesn't reference them all by name but we certainly um see from books like the inner citadel um you have all these references to people of history now um one of those people it seems to be was alexander the great uh, how do you how how do you see Marcus Aurelius viewing Alexander at first? Well, actually, gosh, there's so many things we could say as a prelude to that, and I, I think one of them is that Marcus says often he says these things that are a little bit ambiguous, but he says at one point that he appears to have been writing a history himself of uh, famous Greeks and Romans. Like he sounds, he sounds like he he mentions the title of a book, and it sounds like he's saying this is something he's been working on, which is which is quite plausible. And uh, I, we can guess that Alexander the Great might have been one of those because he was hugely famous. Uh, Romans were very interested in him, and Marcus mentions him quite a few times in the Meditations. And it would have been fascinating to read Marcus's history of Alexander the Great because he doesn't really hold him in particularly high esteem, you know. There's a real contrast. Julius Caesar broke into tears, allegedly, 
you know, uh, there I think there are three different sources that tell us that Caesar wept when he saw Alexander the Great's statue because he thought he'd never be able to rival his achievements. And this is a kind of cliched uh, Roman reaction to Alexander the Great. You know, they almost kind of like to play on this idea. So you'd expect a Roman author to say Alexander wasn't he such a hero and an icon and a and a, and a, a great conqueror and bloody blah, blah. But Marcus really seems to think of him as a tyrant, and he contrasts him to his real heroes, um, who are philosophers like Socrates and Chrysippus and Epictetus, and he lumps them together with Pompey and Julius Caesar as examples of people who were driven, enslaved by their passions. So that, on the one hand, this is a stoic, and in fact, a really a cynic, stoic, philosophical cliché that the people that think of themselves as great rulers are, in a sense, inwardly uh, weak and enslaved men because they're enslaved by the lust for glory and reputation and power and wealth. Uh, whereas people that look like they live in poverty, like uh, Diogenes the Cynic, what would be the obvious example, are are the true kingly characters, the the true the true rulers that walk among us. Because although they have nothing, um, and although people pour scorn on them, they are completely aloof from it, and they need nothing, and so they have complete freedom. And so, in Marcus's eyes, it's Diogenes the Cynic and Epictetus and Socrates that are the true kings among us, and Alexander and Caesar and Pompey are are, are kind of uh, pitiable creatures and enslaved. So there was a definite shift in the in the general view of uh, Alexander the Great over time. Is sort of what you're saying. I mean, I mean, ultimately, um, I know you know I've re- read some of the article that you've written on this subject, and it speaks about Julius Caesar seeing uh, the statue of Alexander in the Temple of Hercules, um, and you know he's overwhelmed with this emotion. But then um, Marcus takes a very different view of that as you've described. So do, do you think that Marcus' view was a very unpopular view at the time of his his feeling that way about uh, Alexander? I think it's a typical philosophical paradox. I don't know if there was a kind of cultural shift. I, mean, I assume that these things perhaps happened over time as certain figures wax and wane in popularity as they always do. It may be a little bit difficult to, to track that throughout the, the centuries of the, 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 the Roman Empire. But... Um, Certainly, going all the way back to Socrates and, and particularly the Cynic philosophers, there's always been this tendency for philosophers to turn everything on its head. You know, the, the Cynics really relished this idea. Socrates was known for his paradoxes. And, and the word paradox in Greek literally means the opposite of popular opinion. Yeah, And the, the Cynics, um, this was kind of, uh, how would you put it? Um, it was a theme. It was kind of... Uh, a symbol of cynicism. You know, the cynics would walk backwards along the street. Uh, when everyone was coming out of the theatre, they would walk into the, the crowd. And the, like the, the phrase that we use today is uh, what swimming against the, the stream. Um, they were kind of doing the opposite of everybody else, turning other people's values on their head. And so the cynics and the stoics looked around and they said, look, everybody in the world values reputation and 
and beauty and wealth and and you know really the what we're trying to do is turn that completely upside down and view those things as relatively trivial and instead view the uh, these inner qualities the virtues as being the most important thing and that means everything's going to be turned topsy turvy it means that the the people that people pour scorn on and view as uh, beggars and outcasts like Diogenes the cynic are going to be elevated to the role of icons and heroes and uh, people like uh, Alexander the Great, although everybody idolizes them, maybe the, the, there's case studies in psychopathology. You know, we, we should be feeling sorry for those people because they're not really flourishing inwardly, although they've achieved all these things outwardly. I guess the equivalent would be a modern day celebrity who everybody kind of wants to be like and idolizes, but maybe they're really miserable inside because they're, you know, or maybe they're really corrupt inside. Um, like it's a Harvey Weinstein character or something, you know, like uh, they have all the wealth and all the power in the world, but they're a miserable wretch morally or, you know, in, in terms of their state of mind or character. So I, I feel all through the ages, probably most people were looking up to figures like Caesar and Alexander the Great, but there's this kind of sliver, this kind of subsection of the community that are into cynicism, stoicism or similar philosophies that want to do the opposite. So when we really look at the philosophy of Stoicism, and there's a there's a definite statement that most people hear, which is to say, the aim or goal is to live in accordance with nature or live in accordance with um, your nature, at least. It definitely seems like um, what Marcus is saying almost is that perhaps these people aren't doing that. And so, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think that that's true? Do you think that Marcus is almost, he's using them as a foil against the virtue, uh, the, the life of virtue to say, look at these people, how, you know, how, how, how far they fall or how, how much they suffer more than others. Is that, is that right? Or, you know, am yeah. I misunderstanding that? No, he'd say they're living in accord with social convention. That's the, the contrast that, um, this is a stoic thing, but it's really a much bigger trope or theme in, in Greek culture and philosophy and subsequently in Roman culture and philosophy, this idea of the life of nature versus the, the life of uh, social convention. And, you know, Diogenes the cynic flouts all social convention. Uh, the oracle at Delphi said that Diogenes was to deface the currency and he was the son of a banker. So he thought this literally meant that he was to uh, to deface the currency but then it took on symbolic meaning for him. It meant that he was to deface the currency by flouting social conventions and swimming against the tide um, of other of cultural values held by the majority of people. So, yeah, I mean, Marcus says his Stoic teachers live in agreement with nature. But Caesar, Pompey, Alexander, these are examples he gives of people that are doing the opposite. Um, the, what they're following is uh, other people's opinions as a guide. These uh, peer pressure, uh, social convention, um, the world of externals, and they're not really looking deep within themselves to try and identify the genuine source of fulfillment. I mean, we don't know if these stories are historically true, but there are a whole bunch of anecdotes uh, about Alexander the Great, for example, him saying that if he wasn't Alexander, then he would have wished to have been Diogenes because there was something about Diogenes that really caught his attention, that you know, Diogenes was more fulfilled than he could ever have been. And uh, they are, there's also the story that when Alexander was dying, he said that he wanted a casket to be made where his hands could hang out either side so that when 
as was the tradition, he was carried through various towns and cities so that people could see his body. They, they would see his, his hands hanging empty. Uh, you know, like we say today, our cliche is you can't take it all with you. And he wanted people to see that he was leaving the world empty-handed, you know, uh, again, like the, the, the cynics might have taught. So I think... Uh, you know, the, the, this is a this is a theme that really pervades Greek philosophy. Um, this idea that if you take it seriously, the the idea that virtue is the only true true good, and the idea of philosophy as a way of life, then you have to really radically question the role models that society takes for granted. I think uh, role models are a really important topic to speak about, actually. It's a good segue because um, in the meditations, Marcus speaks um, very favorably about his uh, adoptive father, Antoninus Pius, and uses his, him as an example. Um, what does he really say about Alexander like that? Is he using Alexander's history as an example of what not to do, as an example of perhaps some good rule to do? Like, what does he really do with uh, his memories or his interpretations of these events that happened in Alexander's life? He doesn't, Marcus doesn't say much about, in detail about Alexander the Great's life. He only mentions him in passing a couple of times as a, about three or four times, I think, in total, as a, an example of somebody who's preoccupied with glory and power. And so, you know, by contrast, he, he has far more to say about Antoninus Pius. And, and I suppose in a way that answers your question indirectly, you know, the Marcus thinks we should be much more focused on good role models. And he wants to acknowledge these bad examples, but he's not really interested in dwelling on them and dissecting them. They would maybe provide kind of case studies, like, psychopathology in a sense but he's more interested in identifying positive role models so he mentions alexander the great and other famous uh, historical leaders in passing a few times but he only really has a sentence or two to say about them whereas antoninus pius he has a lot to say about you know he goes into remarkable detail uh, describing the qualities that he admires uh, he says more about antoninus pius than anybody else in the in the meditations, he talks about seventeen about he talks about maybe seventeen different individuals, I think, in book one of the meditations. But he has far far more to say about Antoninus Pius than any of the others, and we can tell that this is rehearsed because uh, elsewhere in the meditations, he he returns to the subject. He he meditates on uh Antoninus Pius again and provides another list of qualities that he admires in him and if you look at that closely there's no way I think that he sat down and wrote that list off the top of his head um we can see that again he returns to it elsewhere I think he's done this many many times and he's writing this um over a decade probably uh after Antoninus Pius had died and yet he's still sitting down, writing a whole page of notes on the qualities that he admires in his adoptive father. And then he's doing it repeatedly. And those are things he's obviously already thought about many, many times. This is something he's done repeatedly in the past, I think. At least that's the impression that I get. So it's a, an exercise that he studied, I think, over the years. And Antoninus Pius is a role model to him, both in terms of his virtues, his character in general, 
but also obviously is is uh, the kind of ideal, the template for what Marcus thinks a, a good Roman emperor, a good ruler should be like. You've uh, spoken before about uh, that topic, actually, about what a good ruler should be like. Um, what do you think Marcus learned the most from uh, Alexander and what does he talk about um, saying a good ruler should be like? Well, again, he doesn't say much about Alexander except that he's a bad example. And the main reason for that is that he thinks Alexander's overly preoccupied with external things. So by contrast, we can say a lot more about the other side. You know, What does he say positively about, about Antoninus Pius? He says a bunch of things, and but I think they kind of. I wrote an article once where I, I I tried to lump them into categories. So there are about maybe four or five broad categories of leadership traits, if you want to call them that, leadership qualities that Marcus identifies in Antoninus Pius. And you know, so one of them is that he's not really swayed by flattery. Um, and by the way, as an aside, Marcus, I, there's another ruler that Marcus mentions in the meditations fleetingly. And I guess you could group him with Alexander, and that's Hadrian. Uh, so, And that's even more surprising because Hadrian is Marcus's adoptive grandfather. He's part of his family, and he, he, he grew up in his household, and he knew him very well. Um, but he doesn't have anything good to say about him, in the meditations at least. And he mentions his name in passing, but again, like with Alexander... It's only really as a kind of example uh, of somebody, you know, who despite all of his vanity and, and, and all of his reputation is is dead and ends up in, the, in a pile of bones the same as everybody else. So the, the moral of the story is you can't take it with you again. You know, what was the point of it all? Uh, Hadrian was an incredibly vain man who was tremendously preoccupied with his public image. And I think that's really what Marcus has in mind. So what I wanted to say is that in that list of qualities about Antoninus, I find it very hard actually to read what he says about Antoninus without there being a kind of little voice at the back of my mind that adds, unlike Hadrian, at the end of everything. Because almost everything he says about Antoninus really does sound like it's implicitly a criticism of his predecessor. So, for example, he he, he literally says... Um, you know, verbatim, he says uh, nobody could call Antoninus a sophist. And that's a remarkable thing to say because everybody thought that Hadrian was a sophist. Like, I mean, Hadrian was one of the, the leading advocates of the movement called the Second Sophistic. The Romans even called it that. There was a cultural movement in Rome at the time where they embraced Hellenistic culture and uh, wealthy Romans really became patrons of the a new wave of sophists. And uh, like Fronto, for example, or Herodes Atticus were, were some of the leading figures in this movement. And, and Hadrian loved the sophists and he wanted to be associated with them and he, he wanted to compete with them and rival them. He wanted to show off that he was just as uh, sophisticated and literate and intelligent and articulate as they were. And, and Marcus clearly thought this was a complete waste of time. And it was, you know, deeply inappropriate for for an emperor. He should be focusing on running the country, you know, not trying to impress everybody with it, with his learning. Especially now, you know, nobody really thought uh, Hadrian was a particularly learned or intelligent man. It was all really a kind of vanity and pretense. He was very pretentious, as we would say today. So uh, Antoninus Pius did away with all of that. You know, he dressed simply. He lived simply. And Marcus says, you know, as a leader, 
he wasn't focused on appearances and public image in the way that Hadrian was. He was, you know, more of a workaholic, we might say today. You know, he would sit down and think things through methodically, and he was much more concerned with the longer term consequences um, of his uh, political and legal decisions uh, rather than just doing what would uh, what would please the public. So, near the end of his life, um, Alexander was on a massive campaign throughout Asia, and then he passes. And uh, Marcus speaks about that. He speaks about it. I, I believe the quote is something like, Alexander the Great and his stable boy were brought to the same level of death. Um, I think Marcus, he reflects on this a number of times, right, where he speaks about impermanence, and the fact that you can't take it with you. But he this is a very poignant observation that he makes about Alexander. Can you speak about that a little bit? Yeah, um, and you know, I, I think this is one of the clearest examples, I think, of a, a, a strategic psychological exercise that Marcus engages in. So one of the weird things about ancient literature and the Stoic literature in general is that Hado identified, I think rightly, these contemplative practices or psychological exercises that you can read into the Stoic writings. But it's a subtle thing because often they just take the form of uh, sayings or quotes. And sometimes you think, is this an exercise? Like there's a, a fuzzy dividing line between sometimes between a remark and uh, a psychological practice. Maybe that's not obvious to people. But it's very obvious to me as a, I guess I'm a kind of specialist in the technical side of psychotherapy and the practices of psychotherapy. I'm a techniques guy in the field of psychotherapy. But, you know, often just a remark that somebody makes embodies or exemplifies uh, a psychological perspective they're adopting. And if they're deliberately adopting that perspective, you can see it as a strategic psychological exercise. And I've noticed over the years that it, many people don't notice that. You know, they just think it, it's a nice book. There's a lot of um, interesting philosophical sayings in it, but it doesn't strike them that we're talking about practices. But where Marcus gives that away is that he frequently says, um, often picture to yourself or f- every day tell yourself. So the way that he phrases things often highlights the fact that this is a deliberate, regular psychological activity that he's engaging in and this thing about um you know alexander the great and his stable boy or his mule driver are both reduced to the same uh, piles of ash or, or bones the same station in life that sounds like an aphorism but elsewhere in the meditations he makes it very clear that this is a practice that he engages in uh, periodically and, and deliberately. He says to himself, for example, imagine the court of Alexander, imagine the court of Vespasian and Trajan. Um, and he, so he's telling himself literally to sit down and think about these things, maybe even visualize them to himself. And it's a way of reminding himself of his own mortality, of expanding his psychological perspective to take in grander stretches of time. So the Stoics do this exercise we call the view from above. And, you know, to also, he says in, in doing this, um, think of all the people that got married and divorced, all the political arguments, all the battles, um, you know, all the, all the literature produced in these different eras in history, centuries before his time, before he was even born. And he said the things that people are doing today are the same. There's nothing new under the sun, as we would say. 
and so you know he's training himself to to view with a certain amount of detachment this is a, an important technique in stoicism the, the the stoics say shouldn't be surprised by anything he should think these are just different versions of the same things that happened to alexander you know for so, so for marcus he thinks look it seems to be a lot of importance attached to what i'm doing in a sense there is um but, you know, one day I'll be dead and there'll just be statues in stories and history books, the same as with Alexander the Great. You know, he's a celebrated figure, but it's all gone now. I mean, nobody's around anymore that actually knew him in the flesh. You know, it's just a story like that remains. It's just some statues and stuff. Um, it's all gone. But during his day, it, you know, it had all the vibrancy and all the importance and all the activity that surrounds my court now. Like, but that's been the same all the way through history. Like, there have been countless rulers that seemed super important at the time, and now they're mostly forgotten about. Like, they're all dust and ashes. And so he he tells himself specifically to sit down and actually imagine this. Well, Donald, I'd like to close by reading uh, a little bit from the last paragraph of your article on Medium, um, where you say. It was a familiar paradox of ancient philosophy that Diogenes the Cynic, a penniless exile, a beggar who died as a slave, could look upon Alexander the Great, the most powerful man in the more, in the world, as his equal, if not his inferior. Alexander had everything, but he always wanted more. Diogenes had only what little would fit in his knapsack, but he needed nothing, having mastered his own desires. Hence, the philosopher was, in Stoic terms, more powerful and more kingly even than the lord of Asia. Donald, I'd like to say thank you for uh, being on the podcast today. This has been a really great conversation. Um, I would like to give you a second to talk about what you're working on right now. Um, before that, I'll highlight a couple of articles that you have uh, had come out on Medium recently. Um, there was an article entitled Stoicism in Islam, uh, an, an article uh, entitled Stoicism in the Military, as well as uh, an article entitled The Stoicism of Thomas Jefferson. Anything else you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Well, I'll just, there's many, many things, as you know, that we're always working on with modern stoicism. Um, and actually, I'm I'm not going to go into detail about them all because I do that all the time. But I will just mention that, that at the moment I'm busy. I'm kind of un, like a submarine under the surface because I'm working on a, a long-term project. So it's going to be quite a while before it comes out. But uh, the sequel, if you like, uh, the follow-up to How to Think Like a Roman Emperor is a graphic novel. And uh, it takes a long time to do a graphic novel because the artwork takes a long time to do. So we're in the middle of that. People won't see it maybe for another year or so. But I think hopefully we'll get some of the artwork from that and we'll be able to put it on social media so people can get a kind of flavor of what we're doing. But one little observation I'd make about it is that when you take all the stories about Marx's life and you actually get somebody to draw them and illustrate them, it really changes everything I find. So uh, I, I'd underestimated that, that when you actually try to visualize some of the things that were going on in Marcus's life, it suddenly pops off the page and there's a lot more action and activity in it than I'd ever imagined before. And I really think doing that will give people a very different perspective on his philosophy and his life. Well, that's really interesting. And I am looking very much forward to that graphic novel coming out. Donald Robertson, thank you very much for being here and thank you for the conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed the questions. I'd like to thank Donald Robertson for being on the podcast this week. If you'd like to find out more about Donald's work, 
head on over to the episode description, where you'll find links for his website, his Medium articles, and his YouTube channel. You can also find his books sold anywhere online and in stores now. Thanks for listening to the Modern Stoicism podcast this week. If you'd like to learn more, head over to modernstoicism.com, where you can find articles, courses, our Patreon, and other resources. This week, on the Stoicism Today blog, Brittany Polat has authored the article Human Nature and Stoic Development. You've been listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast, the official podcast of modernstoicism.com. Check out all of our episodes at modernstoicismpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like this content, consider rating us or giving us a thumbs up on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Patreon, where patrons get access to exclusive digital content. All music provided by bensound.com.